The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. guest today, John Kaur, joins me to continue creation narrative of Genesis. Today we will be studying chapter 3. Welcome to In Discussion today. My guest, John Kaur, is joining me. C.L. Mitchell is away on a short vacation, so won't be joining us, but we will be continuing uh, with creation narrative of the today, Genesis chapter 3. John, welcome to you. Good day. Good afternoon. <laughs> I'm so sorry, John, that you're not feeling too well. It's okay. <laughs> we'll be as quick as possible. <laughs> He'll fly by. <laughs> John, why don't we start this off by um, looking at a, a brief overview of, uh, of Chapter 3 and um, uh, for our listeners just to, to give them a, a, a summary, as it were. Sure. And, you know, in um, Chapter 3 kind of sets it up for it's kind of the hinge of all of Scripture. Uh, chapter 2, uh, we had left uh, Adam and Eve in perfect uh, relationship, perfect harmony, so to speak. They are in this beautiful garden, this perfect environment that God had placed them in. Uh, he has given them um, meaningful work to do. Uh, they have a relationship with one another that is perfect, with, with God that is perfect, with, their, with nature that's perfect. But chapter 3 sets it up for the change, for the fall, for all that to to be um, affected by sin. In chapter 3, we, we are introduced to a, a new character, the serpent, which we will discuss who that is. And uh, by his uh, beguiling of, of Eve and temptation of her, uh, basically uh, they give in and plunge uh, into sin. And we see, uh, we begin to see the consequences of the fall. Chapter three is about the fall of man. Um, and what's interesting also is that is that when we talk about the fall, we often talk about it in the past tense, you know. But the fall continues in the sense of disobedience. Uh, man and women, mankind, uh, are no different from man and Eve. Um, and uh, so we can. There's a lot of questions we have that can be answered by looking at this chapter. And uh, from chapter 3 on, we see how sin will increase. We, we'll see how, how um, excuses will come in. <laughs> we will see how, how sin will begin to grow uh, in intensity and how it will spread to all of mankind uh, in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 as well. But the beginnings of it is in chapter 3. And also in chapter 3, though, that we have some bad news of the sin, the consequences. We do have a, a hint of good news, too, here uh, in verse 15, where God promises uh, some sort of redemption. And afterwards, we begin to see God's plan of redemption being worked out. Uh, 
so chapter three is a crucial chapter, and this is where uh, where, where uh, the world is kind of turned upside down, so to speak. Well, let's um, let's start from verse one. Don't, why don't we and, and uh, uh, crawl our way through this? Um, can you tell me uh, first of all for our listeners why why a serpent? What is the serpent representing? And can we just uh, clarify why the word crafty is being used? Well, <clears throat> what's interesting is that uh, at the end of chapter two, it says that the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. And what the Hebrew writer is using is a form of that word naked in the word crafty. There's a play on words um, as if to take advantage of that. Um, The serpent, um, what's interesting, we don't know where the serpent comes from. The serpent, this serpent is obviously not a normal serpent. Uh, He is not a, he is not good. And if you look at chapters 1 and 2, God looks back at his creation and he declares he was all very good. And this serpent, um, there's something about him that's not good. Uh, In the ancient Near East, the the serpents uh, often um, represented of uh, of chaos as well as, uh, um, you know, as well as life as well. And the idea of the serpent and the serpent, you know, is very beguiling and very crafty, very shrewd. It's a perfect picture of the way the, the deceiver here uh, comes about his business. Uh, he comes to Eve indirectly wanting to lead leave, uh, Eve astray. He doesn't come uh, to Eve uh, and say, I want you to sin against God and, and run away from God and do all this bad stuff. He is very – he actually wants to talk theology with Eve. And uh, so he's not a normal serpent and we don't – he's perhaps somebody from a different world from the heavenly court so to speak. And we find out later on it's you know Satan, the deceiver. So, but, the, so serpent is being used simply for a contextual purpose. Perhaps, yeah. And, and what we don't know is – and it could be that the serpent, if you look at uh, later on the chapter – when God appears on the scene, he talks to the serpent and he says, cursed, you will, you're, cursed are you more than all the cattle of the field. So perhaps there is an actual real snake being used here, but there's somebody behind the snake speaking through the snake, so to speak, because clearly this, this snake is not a normal snake. He is very gifted or very skilled at beguiling people um, up to this point. Adam and Eve, mankind, were the pinnacle of God's creation and perhaps the most, um, you know, equipped. But they are no match uh, for the serpent. The serpent uh, knows what the uh, the probation was as far as eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and yet knows how to lead them on a path of away from God. So there's something going on here that uh, there's somebody behind the serpent that that. Um, that is uh, pulling the string, so to speak. Why did the serpent arrive in the first place? What was the catalyst for that? Uh, well, th- that that crushed God's plan to to have these um, perfect human beings. Well, <clears throat> that's a good question. It goes back to um, was called the probation, and where God says in in chapter two, sixteen, He says. He commands him and he says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, 
Uh, but, in verse 17, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it, of it. So here there's a test because unlike other animals and beings, human beings are given a choice. It is our human choice, our human freedom, so to speak, is both a uh, it's a blessing and could be a curse. And here man uh, is given a choice to willingly submit to that to that uh, prohibition which when you think about it really wasn't that bad of a prohibition because you know they had begin they were given all the trees of the garden <laughs> except for one <laughs> you know I mean, I mean I don't know how big this garden was but I mean it was one little one little tree um, but the test here is will they willingly submit to to God's authority remember they are also they are given authority to rule over the earth and to subdue the birds and the fish and the animals. Yet at the same time, their authority is limited by not eating this tree. It's a test. Here comes the serpent who is going to kind to who's going to try to exploit this to see um, if he can lead them to uh, to disobey God. So it's part of the test. And it's part of the fact that we are given free will and given free choice and. Uh, um, and if Adam and Eve had freely chosen not to eat of that tree, then they would have said to God, we declare our, our dependence on you. And we, and, you know, that thing would have continued rightly and perhaps we'd be in Garden of Eden now. I don't know. But, um, but the fact that they decided to rebel against that, and that's what the serpent is trying to do, is trying to get them to rebel against it. He is, he is there by the fact that there's a choice to be made. Would it be accurate to say that this chapter is probably the most profound in the whole Bible and furthermore the most profound story that has ruled over and uh, carved our road uh, since the beginning of creation Um, yes and no Yes, to the point of this is the hinge that turns the scripture up until the time of the cross. It's at the cross that, that the um, that uh, the second Adam, as Jesus is called, himself being tempted, himself also uh, being in the garden and facing the, the choice to be made whether to submit to the Father's will or to do his own will, which he willingly submits to the Father's will. Yeah, so this chapter 3 is huge. Uh, it's changes the direction of the ship, so to speak, uh, on the wrong course. And then at the cross, God corrects that uh, with with Christ. So, so, yeah. so Christ was able to accomplish what Adam and Eve could not. Exactly. And yet, do we still not have, even after the crucifixion, a broken world that still uh, is based upon great sin? Yes. And the plan of God is there's going to be one day where this fallen world will be done away with and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Uh, the first thing that God had to do, want to do, is to um, rectify the sin aspect and, and the, the condition of man. Uh, why God didn't do, uh, do it all at once, I don't know. But in his plan, we are, we are shown in Scripture that, uh, that this fallen world will be done away with and God is going to redeem and uh, 
create a new heavens and earth, so to speak. And it's part of the plan. It has not been realized yet. Um, and that is only under God's wisdom of why he's done it the way he's done it. Uh, but yes, we still live in a fallen world. Is that uh, is that new world that you refer to uh, and that is referred to in the last uh, book of the Bible um, in a way another flood or is it very different from that? Is it another flood in... In so much as cleaning up humanity in order to start again? <clears throat> I wouldn't say it's another flood because the flood... It did clean up humanity, but it didn't um, – it, first of all, the flood didn't change human hearts. Um, the, the the cross is designed to do just that. And what – see, man's sin has affected nature in such a way that nature itself is not living up to what it was designed to, to, to live up to. For example, when he says to – back in Genesis 3, he says to Adam – uh, that curses the ground because of you, that uh, thorns and thistles will grow, that it won't produce as easily or as greatly as it once did in the garden. So the, the creation itself, as Paul says, the creation is groaning to be redeemed. Um, it's not really cleaning. It's more of a, it's perhaps an antidote uh, to uh, this disease that is affecting nature itself. That nature, and, and you could look at the universe, is decaying. It's falling apart. Um, the new heavens and new earth will not be that way. It will not um, be in a state of decay. So I wouldn't say it's exactly like a, the second flood. It's probably more of God rather than wiping out. It's fixing what was wrong and uh, redeeming the creation from the effects of sin, our sin on the world. So it will, it will finally be a reversal of right. what we're looking at here today, right. chapter 3. Right. So verse 2 um, uh, basically defines the conversation between the woman and the serpent uh, in, in alerting her that um, uh, basically um, compromising her Right. Uh, with this, with this tree and the fruit on the tree, and we reach uh, verse four, uh, where the serpent is saying to the woman, "You will not surely die." Um, uh, now he, he's also so crafty that he can actually say, "For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil." Now th that last sentence is of interest: knowing good. and and evil. What, right. is, what is the serpent saying there? Okay, well, here's what the serpent is doing. First of all, he is he's very crafty, in that he, and this is what he still does, is he speaks in half-truths. Um, he, he, first, of all, he, first of all, he questions, he begins to even just, the command of God was given, and he, and he diminishes that command of, you shall not eat of this tree or else you'll die, to a question. And right off the bat, that raises doubt. Is that suggesting that the serpent perhaps is middle-minded, is not even sure of himself in doing what he's doing? Oh, no. He knows exactly what he's doing um, because his approach here is to cause them to in some way doubt God's provision, God's goodness, uh, God's nature. And so he is implying that God is keeping you from something, Eve. Um, God knows that if you eat of this tree, you'll be 
like him, knowing good and evil. Stop right there. That's true. They will know. They will be like God, knowing good and evil. But they will not be like God in the sense that God does not know good and evil experientially. God does not commit evil, but he knows everything else about evil that, that can be known. Uh, in fact, later on, uh, if you look at uh, uh, later on in the chapter, verse 22, uh, after, after the fall has taken place and God makes them, you know, some clothes to wear, uh, he, says, um, yeah, he says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. But it's not in the same sense that the serpent is doing here. It's in a, it's very subtle. They know good. They know evil by the by the fact that they have just committed evil. Um, so there's a subtlety here. So the serpent here is he knows what he's doing, and he is he is purposely um, trying to um, cause them to doubt, to question uh, something about God, the goodness of God. Now, here's the thing. What's interesting is again, God has given so much to them. And this one little, this one tree, he is so crafty on focusing them on the one thing they cannot have rather than the rest of what God has given them. And that's what the serpent does to even today. You know, somebody can have, you know, a lot of stuff and still envy the one thing he doesn't have. Um, as always, if, always, always looking over the other side of the fence. Exactly. There's always somebody, something else to achieve, something else to have. But yet looking at all that, that God has given, ignoring that. And that's what the serpent does. He kind of keeps it out of your mind. Uh, he makes you forget the good things that you've received and says, well, here's the one thing you haven't gotten. God must be bad. Well, <laughs> um, and that's how, that's how deceptive he is. That is how, um, you know, and he's trying to, he's trying to get Eve to, uh, to, to know this good and evil, so to speak, or to be like God, even though the text says that they are already made in God's image, even though there's something already about them that is like God, he is convincing them or trying to convince uh, Eve here that she does not have what she actually already has. Um, and uh, that's part of his, his attempt. So, Can I just return very briefly because we want to progress? And just clarify for our listeners, what was it that the serpent was so aggrieved about with God prior to this that led him down this path to um, compromise Adam and Eve? Oh, boy. <laughs> You're asking why, just, is, uh, why a, is the serpent so mad at God? <laughs> yes, basically. <clears throat> Well, we, as the Christian theology teaches, or our understanding is, at least my understanding is that, is that perhaps the serpent, Satan, who was Lucifer, uh, himself was an angel of God, um, had been uh, had had been thrown out of heaven, so to speak, because of his own desire to be like God. The very desire that got him thrown out of heaven is the desire he's trying to convince Eve to, to pursue. So, in other words, uh, Lucifer and the serpent are one of the same. Yes, and we don't now we don't see this, you know, obviously this early in Genesis, but later theology sort of enlightens us to that. The and if you look at all of Scripture, it is Satan or Lucifer who is the one who brings accusations to God 
for example, in the book of Job, you have uh, Satan coming to before God and accusing God of wrongdoing, of saying, you know, Job, you know, uh, he, the reason, only reason why he loves you is because you bless him so much. So Job becomes sort of like a, a test case, and God says, well, you know, actually, he's a righteous man. He loves me because he loves me. And, and Satan says, well, you know, take away his stuff, and then he'll curse you. And, of course, you know, you know the whole story of Job is that um, he goes through major trials and passes the test. In all of Scripture, it is only it is only this uh, the accuser that's the name of Satan is the accuser who does this. So there's he is um, he hates God, you know, and the very thing that got him thrown out, thrown out of heaven. Uh, and my understanding is that he had a very high position in heaven, and uh, because of his pride, because of him wanting to be in a place that was not designed for him, namely God's throne. Um, that got him into trouble. And this is possibly defining the so many problems that we have in humanity today in terms of uh, the, the need for power, the egotistical nature that we have as human beings. Yeah, if you look at, I mean, if you look at what happens after the fall, you have, um, you have a tendency of man, you know, for, for wanting power, for wanting to be in a position that, um, that they can usurp or take you know, and and you see that you see that today, and uh, uh, even those who have power, it gets to their head. It gets to the point where they forget that they serve others, and they try to be uh, like God to be worshipped. That was Satan's big or Lucifer's desire was to be worshipped, but only God to be worshipped. And people who get into power get power. You know, they get in these power plays, and they they almost want to be worshipped. Well, I mean, it c- could it could uh, the argument be placed out there that possibly Lucifer, the devil, in many ways, won given where we are today? That is a dreadful question. Yeah, I don't but, know. If but, <laughs> but, but, but you know where I'm going with that. It seems at the moment that we that as fallen beings, we uh, seem to be playing towards or playing into, in, into his. Yeah, into his garden rather than playing towards what God needs. Yeah, he um, he's temporarily has this world, but that's not the end of the story because the end of the story is is Jesus Christ Himself returning, and as God has given him the position of being Lord of Lords and King of Kings, even Satan himself will bow down to Jesus and confess Him as Lord. Even those who do not follow Jesus will someday bow down. So temporarily. God in his providence is allowing Satan to have his playtime, so to speak. But the end of the story is, is his, his playtime is going to be over. Uh, why God has chosen to do it that way, I do not know. That is in the wisdom and knowledge of God. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is that the fall was – is that God knew the fall would take place. God being the all-knowing God – he is outside time, and he sees the beginning and end of time all at once. He knew that the fall would happen, and the scripture indicates that they already uh, Jesus was already planned to come before the fall even took place. More theology to get into, but the fall did not take God by surprise. So it it is a divine plan. It is that, that God has in the long term for this world and 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 human beings. Yeah, and the, the thing is, is people ask, well, how come you know God allowed it to fall? 
Well, it goes down to the fact that God has made us free will or free beings with free choice. It is a being that has a free choice that can choose to follow God or not follow God or to love God or not love God. And it's that that kind of relationship that God desires with people. He could have made robots who loved him automatically, but that would not have been real love. So given the fact that we, are, we, have made, we have these choices, then we have these choices, and now we're, now we're living with the consequence of these choices. Um, are, are you saying in that that God doesn't want to make it easy, doesn't want to make this a, uh, a garden of Eden where everything has no challenges assigned to it? I think what God desires is people who will love him and worship him by choice. And that was what the garden was all about. That was what the first temptation was all about. Uh, that's why when you see um, Christ being tempted, one of the first things you read in the Gospels is how he is taken into the wilderness and having just fasted for 40 days and not being obviously in real strong strength because of being – he is in a, in a weak position. The tempter tempts him with the same kind of temptations that Adam and Eve are tempted, the temptation for – uh, for for power, the temptation for um, for uh, um, having my way be done above God's way, and Jesus, of course, passes the temptation as if to say, "This is the way it should have been in the first place." Now I'm going to redeem this process. Um, so, I forget what your question was. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. Something we'll, about the fallenness. Of yeah, man. we'll continue. <laughs> we uh, arrive at verse six. And uh, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. Now, that's of interest to me, uh, that phrase and desirable for gaining wisdom, because actually gaining wisdom had not been uh, had not come up in the text before in this chapter. Well, I think what he's referring to is that if you will open it or if you I'm sorry, if you will eat of it, then you will be like that. You'll know good and evil. That's the wisdom part, this knowledge. And it's not that God did not want them to have wisdom or knowledge. It was the way they attained that knowledge that was forbidden. And so um, what she does here is is uh, she, she um, is given um, – She kind of she 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 decides to supplant uh, with this 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 food that's de- desirable to the eye is this this um, this that even today uh, many temptations come our ways through the eyes and we and we um, we lust for something uh, whether it's food or whether it's sex or whatever uh, that that is attractive uh, is and it promises so much. You know, uh, part of of the the, the tactic here of, of the serpent is to sort of package uh, this in an attractive way, as if it's promising something. For example, I remember my kids uh, when they were younger; they're still young now. We have these apples on the dining room table, and they're green and they're fake, though. <laughs> and, <laughs> And How cheap. <laughs> well, they're, they're decorative, you know. <laughs> we have real apples. Trust me, they have apples every day. But we had these fake green apples that are just decorative. And, and um, one of them uh, took um, took one and was about to bite into it because 
it looked like a real apple. It looked like it promised the flavor and tastiness of a real apple, but it didn't. What Satan is doing here, he is packaging this, uh, this, hey, don't follow God, go against what God has said in an attractive way, promising it will bring you something that's not going to bring you. And so even uh, the temptation here with Eve is to sort of do something or, or be able to receive something in a way that God has not ordained, namely uh, eating of this fruit. Now, it makes the point that she also gave some to her husband yeah. who was with her and he ate it. There, there is a message behind that, that sentence. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a um, – that verse is so loaded because then the question is why is Adam there sitting there watch this happen? I, I was just smiling at you, John, because I was thinking if we had CL with us right now, we would be – that would be it, wouldn't it? We'd be stuck on, <laughs> I on would verse have... six for the rest of the program. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, CL, <laughs> if you're listening. Um, yeah, because there's so much here. The, the, the question is what is Adam doing? And is he, is he watching this happening? Is he allowing this to happen? First of all, Adam is the one in charge, so to speak, because he's the one that's given the command. Eve is the one that says, and later on in Scripture, it says that it was through Adam that sin came. So I thought, I thought Eve sinned first. Uh, well, Adam's a representative head of, of the human race, and Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived. Surely uh, Adam he, is the king and the prophet and the master and the leader. So, so why would it be that that is a reversed scenario to what you, you would think it should be? Well, well, Adam is – he is the head. He is either – he is the, the representative, yes. Eve – it says that Eve being, uh, was, being, was being deceived, but Adam willingly dis- decided to sin. In other words, the uh, – the question is, why doesn't Adam speak up and say, Eve, uh, what he's telling you is wrong? No, Adam is not being led into deception. He willingly takes the fruit. And the question, there's different questions. There's different commentaries on, on what's going on here. Perhaps, perhaps Adam sees his wife who's just eaten this fruit and knows the consequence of this and decides to partner with her in this. I don't know about that. But he willingly decides to sin. Is there is there a uh, connotation or a contextual association between this very verse six and the, uh, the the verses that you see in Proverbs in the the tempting of the woman? Yeah, like the verses that talk about you know that that her her words are like oil that yes. go down. Yeah, yes, yeah. That's um, it's the same notion that. Um, that the temptation promises something that, that does not deliver. And so, in, for example, in the Proverbs uh, verses where the adulteress, that her words are so smooth, they're like oil, and, and it's so enticing, and, and she leads you into, you know, into her room, and, all, and the next thing you know, she's stabbing you in the back. You know, you're, you're facing the consequence, and, and that's exactly the kind of tempta- temptation today. It does the same thing. It promises you great things. But it does not deliver. In fact, it delivers the opposite. Think about men who cheat on their wives, men who uh, who are tempted by uh, by some 
some woman out there who uh, who um, take, gets your attention, and the promise is, oh, you know, we'll, we can do this, and we can live happily ever after, and nobody will be affected by it. And it never works out. It never works out. And worstly is that if they're married, their family's affected by it, the children are affected by it, on and on and on it goes. And you're not told that. You're not, you don't see the dagger that the serpent's carrying while he's talking to you or the poison that's inside this, this fruit he's presenting to you. And that's a lot of times the, the case is that, is that we don't often see, think of the consequences that happen. Part of what Satan does or what the serpent does here is to, to, discount, to discount the consequences. He says, oh, you're not going to die. He, he flat out back in verse 4 says, God says, you will die. And Turbot says, no, you will not die. He, he flat out rejects God's word right there. The consequence was as they, they died you know, as a result of sin. And, and sin always brings some sort of death. Adam and Eve died. They died. Well, the first death was spiritual. The, the Hebrew says that dying you shall die. And the first death was the spiritual separation from God. That's what death is. The bodily death comes afterwards, but the most important death that happened was the fact that they were separated in some sense from God. And so that is the death they're talking about. We oftentimes people read this, well, they didn't die. They're still living. Uh, no, their relationship with God is broken, and, and there's a spiritual death that happens. Yes, the physical death fa- follows afterwards, uh, but um, it says that in the day that you eat of it, uh, you will die, and they did. But if we look at the first 20, 25 chapters of Genesis and we follow this road of, of all these people like Abraham, they are retrieved. They are offered hope by right. God, even though they, they are in some cases pagans and, uh, and dreadful individuals. Uh, perhaps are you saying that they have reached the point where they have they have died spiritually, but God makes the decision, you weren't my love. Um, yes, the the all of mankind, whether it's Adam or Abraham or you and I, uh, are in the state of being dead to God. Yet at the same time, God is the one who promises to bring someone of redemption, even here in chapter 3, verse 15. And this, this redemption that he brings is entirely his work. Uh, it is, is entirely his doing um, to rectify uh, the wrongs that were done. Um, so... Um, Um, excuse me. So, so God's plan of redemption uh, begins here, and and it, um, and perhaps God realized that that would have to be His mandate. See, with, that's, with human beings. See, that's the thing is is even after. What's interesting is is that the first thing that happens when people get into trouble <laughs> is I'll dig myself out of this trouble, right? And God says in so many terms, you cannot dig yourself out of this. There's nothing you can do to dig yourself out of this sin hole you've dug. And man's attempts have always fall, fallen short. And so what God has to do is he has to, he has to go and make the atonement. He has to go and provide the way so that they can come back and have this chapter 2 type of relationship they once had with him. 
And that's what the, that's what the cross is all about. That the cross is all about bringing us back into you know, this fellowship relationship that existed beforehand in chapter two in the in Garden of Eden. Which is interesting. After chapter in chapter three, after they sin, they are cast out from the Garden of Eden, and there's a chair put in, in the in the place there to guard them from entering back in. Because at the heart of this garden is a relationship with God, which has to be protected. Yet there cannot be a division between us and God. There's no, there can be no, nothing that gets in the way. And so to prevent us from entering back in, this cherub is, is presented. Well, when Christ uh, comes and, and sheds his blood, he now allows the people to come back into, into relationship with God. That's why it says in the book of Hebrews that, that we can boldly come, those of us who are believers can boldly come into the presence of God, uh, into the throne room of God, and presenting our, you know, our prayers and requests and whatnot. Um, so what Christ has done, he has redeemed um, that which presented, prevented us from being in, in close fellowship. So in other words, prior to uh, Christ and the crucifixion, we didn't have that available to us. No, and what we did have and what the, the scriptures did have is, is pictures or types of what Christ would ultimately do. For example, you had in the Old Testament um, the Levitical laws, which sacrifices, where the priests would offer various sacrifices and the shedding of blood. And if you read, uh, it must have been a very bloody ordeal in the sense that every day there are sacrifices, but it was a constant reminder of what had to be done. Well, once Christ comes and and sheds his blood, he is the ultimate fulfillment of all those other sacrifices. That all those other sacrifices of the lambs and the goats and whatnot are just merely pictures of the substance that happens in Christ. And those those pictures that look forward to Christ, to the look forward to the time of the cross. That is why he, Christ is referred to as the Lamb of God. The Old Testament had. Uh, had a, a lamb of uh, actually they had uh, the Passover lambs. They had uh, the lamb of the atonement um, that 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 bore the sins of Israel. Um, they had one lamb, one lamb that that was sacrificed. That was uh, that they uh, Israel confessed their sins on. The other lamb was the scapegoat lamb that was led out into the wilderness. And both lambs picture what Christ does in, at the cross, taking away sins from us. And paying for the penalty of the sin. So when Christ comes and he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, uh, as John uh, the Baptist refers to him, he ultimately fulfills all those Old Testament sacrifices. And that's and then there's no more sacrifice to be done because his sacrifice is, is, as he says, paid it in full. I was going to say that ideology that we saw prior to Christ is effectively arrested after Christ yeah. arrives. Right. You're right there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, let's get on. Correct. <laughs> um, we are now at uh, verse 8 and moving through. Um, the, the, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid. Um, and they hid, obviously, because they realized that they had done wrong. Um, and, and when in verse 10, uh, he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, Adam at this stage already knew that he was now uh, 
with garments. So he was already lying to God there or deceiving God at yeah. that stage. He is not really with garments. Uh, I don't – he's not uh, – Well, call them twigs. Well, yeah, okay. He's – yeah, he's uh, – he decided to um, – to hide, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, with the twig, and that's where the, there's something obviously has happened. This is shift because obviously the first, uh, second chapter, last verse says that they were naked and unashamed. Now they're naked and very ashamed, and trying to cover themselves. Something has happened. We don't know whether it was uh, it was some sort of realization that that something either had left them or something something had shifted in. And, um, and uh, the shift was obviously the sin, um, and their attempts to cover themselves are futile, of course, you know. And and I should have prefaced that last point by saying, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? So God already realized what the situation was and what had occurred. Yeah, and it's not like God didn't know. <laughs> I mean, it apparently, you know, apparently, first of all, God is, perhaps this was a daily routine, that they would have walks in the garden together. Who knows, you know? But God already knows, knew where they were at. He already knows where, you know, people are today. But it's it's not, hey, Adam, have you sinned yet? It's it's really up to, up to God wants Adam to fess up to say what has really happened. That's the first step, you know? And, and Adam failed. Yeah, because the, he doesn't say, you know, I, I, um, I disobeyed you, God. You know what the first thing he does? Well, you know, the woman, God, that you gave me, it's her fault. You know, when God says to the woman, what have you done? And the woman says, well, the serpent, he, de- he deceived me. Right off the bat, here God gives an opportunity for them to say, the truth is, we disobeyed. They start blaming. You know, right off the bat, they don't want to admit to it. They start blaming. God, it's your fault. This woman you gave me? Where, where in verse 12, he said, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. Right. Well, talk about betrayal. Yeah. And the thing is, is that nobody forced Adam to eat the fruit. He willingly ate the fruit. He wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. He just took it like a <laughs> – willingly took it. It was his own choice to do that. Yet he's blaming God indirectly by blaming uh, the woman and saying, God, it's your fault I did this. Uh, it, it's no different today. You know, people always want to blame somebody. Oh, I was, you know, I was raised wrong. I was, you know, I was, um, I don't know. It was just, oh, somebody else is always to blame. That's why you have, especially in America, you have people suing somebody else because they got hurt and it's not my fault. We're, we're very good at that. We're very we? good at that. And, and, and the court's... You know, when the the tort system here is is so uh, it's so bad that it, it awards people for not taking responsibility. Those who take responsibility are are few. You know, that's another issue. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say let's let's not uh, let's not get to the court system here. Uh, we could take a wrong turn. Um, we get to verse thirteen. Uh, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And it's almost too late, isn't it? And then the woman uh, said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Well, it was too late by then. The woman yeah. should have uh, confessed prior to that point, probably prior to verse 12. So the woman really, uh, it's already a cop-out. They're, they're already making excuses. So how does God see that now? What is his reaction going to be? 
Well, I mean, God sees through. I mean, He sees through the excuses, and the ultimate thing that God wants people to do is to truly confess uh, the the truth. And to confess means to say the same thing as, or to see it as God sees it, so to speak. Um, yes, the, he she was deceived. Um, that is true, but being tempted. Um, Jesus was tempted, but yet he didn't give in to sin, thank, thank the Lord. Um, she is still, uh, given the fact that she is, she's given this command by God, and yet the, the serpent can come in there and just tempt her and deceive her. You know, yet it's, you know, she has to be, she is probably responsible as well as Adam, as well as the serpent as well. In fact, the consequences that follow, though she's deceived, she still faces consequences because she, she could have said no. It's like if I say to my wife, oh, see, I, was, I was so tempted by this woman. I, I, well, she, she would say to me, you could have said no, you know, and, and I still would face consequences. So uh, there's still consequences to be faced, and, and this is what follows in the rest of the chapter. So we see uh, verse 14 here, and, and I may need some clarification. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, it goes on to 15. That that speaks for itself. Now, it goes on to uh, 15. And I will put uh, enmity between you and the woman. Now, is that uh, enmity between the, the snake and the woman or the man and the woman? Uh, between the snake and the woman. Now, why is uh, God choosing to put the snake against the woman rather than against the man who ultimately as the prophet and the king in this relationship should really bear the blame? Well, <clears throat> that's, a, that's a good question. And what God is doing here is he is, and this is the verse where he is going to allude to uh, a redeemer um, because the fact that the woman was deceived and gave into sin, yet God is going to turn that which was bad and he's going to make something good out of it so that it says that, that, that the seed of the woman which we later to learn to be uh, the Messiah, is going to be the one who will crush the serpent's head. And part of what's going on here is, is he says, between your seed and her seed. So first of all, you have, you have a picture of perhaps the conflict between those who follow God and those who follow Satan or who follow their own, self, their own lives, their selves. This conflict in the rest of the scripture uh, that happens, this tension where you have people who follow God and those who follow their their own appetites, they will be in conflict. But then he also says he, referring to the seed of the woman, will bruise your head. So sometime in the so sometime in the future, the seed of the woman, who is the Messiah, who is Jesus, himself will, as Paul says, uh, uh, crush the serpent's head. There's there's a this is called a proto evangelium, and and it's. Uh, it's sort of a, a gospel, and before a gospel came to be, so there's a um, there's this there's going to be this tension. Now, I just have to comment that some commentators believe this describes the animosity between people and snakes, and <laughs> it's okay. I I and I don't know, but uh, I know enough people who have pet snakes and they love their snakes, and I don't like snakes, but. Uh, there's something deeper going on here. There's something definitely deeper going on here. Go back to verse 14 because he tells the serpent that uh, you are cursed more than any of the uh, the beasts of the field. The, he is describing humi- humiliation. Uh, you are going to eat dust. You're going to be lower than any other animal. You are going to be 
on the ground in humiliation, eating dust. Uh, and he and um, he's a punishing perhaps a real serpent, perhaps, but but perhaps the the serpent behind the serpent. Uh, will, of course, one day face the humiliation himself. And this is clarifying that that the serpent, the devil, Lucifer, whoever, is an animal and not a human being. He is, he is, uh, he is another kind of, of creation that we can't entirely explain. He's, uh, he is, we believe, in a fallen angelic being, but his ways are pictured perfectly, so to speak, in the ways of the serpent uh, in the way he goes about. But he get, but uh, back to verse 15, God gives this promise of, of redemption that he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The bruising on the head speaks of more of a death blow and the bruising on the heel is kind of speaking of not as, as injurious. But this points to uh, perhaps redemption. In fact, Eve believes that this is what God is happening because afterwards when she has a child and she has um, – um, in chapter 4, she has Cain. Her initial reaction is, oh, I've gotten a man-child, even the Lord. And the, the reading in the Hebrew seems to indicate that she thinks that this child will be that redeemer. It turns out that Cain's not. But she understands God's promise here that she will have a child and that child will, ta- will rectify what was just done in, back in chapter 3. Unfortunately, it's not Cain because um, he turns out to be a murderer. But, but she understands that. She understands this promise. And, uh, you know. Now, we, <clears throat> in the final minutes of the program, we travel through 15. Uh, we, get, we, uh, we get to 16 and the woman uh, is, is told that her, her childbearing pain will increase. Um, uh, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So that is, uh, that's possibly in 16 at the end there, uh, defining how God has now said, uh, because of what you have uh, done here, uh, the man will now take a pivotal role and he will now be the king and the prophet in the relationship. Yeah, and what you have, and this, these verses are very controversial because of, um, well, the implications. What you have, of course, is a is a twisting, so to speak, of the relationships that had existed. Excuse me. Whereas before, the man and woman had perfect harmony relationship. Now, because of sin, there's a shift in that. There's a change that is distorted, and we're not sure. There's there's different commenta- uh, commentators uh, about what this verse exactly means, as far as the uh, you know, not talking about the pain in childbirth, but the fact he says, "Yet your desire, your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you." Some say that he's talking about even though you're going to go through great pain in childbirth, yet you're still going to desire your husband, um, and everything will be okay. Other people take it to be that she will try to usurp his authority. In other words, she will try to be the boss of the home, but at the same time, he's going to rule over you in a dominating way. So you have, just as she decided to follow this, uh, the serpent's lead in trying to usurp God's authority of, of being in charge by eating the fruit, uh, she, her, the, the implication is you will, you will desire to rule over your husband, yet he is going to rule over you. So there's different camps that hold the different things. 
and what you have in verse in this verse, your desire will be for your husband. What's interesting in the very next chapter, in chapter four, the same word and and sentence structure is used to describe how how Cain is uh, is he really want he doesn't like the fact that his his sacrifice has been uh, rejected, and God visits him and he says. Uh, he says, listen, sin is at the door and it's, his desire is to, to to get you, you know, but you must master it. So it could be it's a picture of this conflict, this vine for position within the family, whereas before it was harmonious. Now afterwards it's it's not harmonious. And then not only is she trying to rule over him, but at the same time he – He's not going to love you in a loving way. He's going to rule over you in a domineering way. And so that's another consequence of the fall. That's two interpretations. But the idea is that their relationship and relationship people today uh, between husbands and wives will not be as harmonious as it once was. And and uh, um, God, you know, reveals that to them. Well, let me finish uh, by reading 19 to 21, and it may be that we will uh, be returning to review it. We've we've got four minutes left here. Uh, 19, by the sweat of your brow, uh, you will eat your food uh, until you return to the ground, since from it were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. 20, as Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living, the final verse, uh, verses 21 to 24, The Lord God made garment, garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed... On the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Would you like to um, comment on that in our, our final final couple of minutes? Yeah, right here we see um, God's grace in a big way. First of all, he provides for them uh, coverings. You know, they've sinned. Uh, he's telling them the consequences partly. You know, we talk about the women's and the and the the man's, of course, he's going to have uh, back to uh, back in verse seventeen through nineteen that uh, work will be difficult for him, um, but he uh, provides covering for them, and then he also, in in his grace, protects them from eating this tree of of life. Because if they had eaten of this tree of life in their condition, they would have forever lived in an unredeemed state, so to speak. And so uh, we actually don't see the tree of life until later on in, in Revelation, I think, Revelation 22, uh, that pictures another garden, so to speak, a paradise. Uh, but in his grace, he, he, he prevents Adam and Eve from eating of this tree of life so that they will not live forever in this sinful state. Um, and, uh, and, of course, he, he banishes them from this garden, which, uh, of course, you know, one day... Um, he will, uh, because of, of Christ's sacrifice, uh, people return to uh, uh, to this kind of relationship. But but uh, he decides to um, to then uh, what you see in the rest. What you'll see in the rest of the story, the rest of the of Genesis, is now how God is going to put into place this plan of redemption, uh, and uh, and we'll begin to see, of course, in the next couple of weeks how bad 
how, how sinful sin is in chapters 4 through 6. Um, and then God will step in in chapter 12 to then um, announce uh, his um, further plans of redemption for mankind. John Cole, thank you very much uh, for being here today and uh, reviewing uh, chapter 3. I'm sure that uh, next week when C.L. Mitchell rejoins us, we will be able to uh, review chapter 3 before commencing with chapter 4. Thank you. Thank you. And to our listeners today, I hope you have enjoyed this program as much as I have. Uh, Thank you for listening. If you need information on this or any other program in the series, you can visit davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, God bless you, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.